A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to Order 66 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.StarWarsReport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here, let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, Mark Herleman, and with me like the peanut butter to my jelly, the EU guru himself, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Peanut butter jelly time, peanut butter... Oh my god, I can't believe I just said that. Um, well, folks, I mean, this is it. This is uh, the wrap-up of our Revan stuff, as we'll get into in a moment. This is... Uh, for me, spring break, you'll be hearing this at the end of my spring break as my freedom is about to end. Um, hopefully some of you are also picking up that PS3 version of Defiance out there and letting us know that you're playing so that we can uh, play alongside each other in that MMO world out there. I'm hoping that by the time you hear this, a lot more uh, will be done on the Star Wars Timeline Gold and whatnot before we begin the frantic push to the end of the year. Uh, I don't know. I mean, Mark, eventually... Your children will be high school age, and it'll be interesting to see whether the stress of it is is more on you know the teacher's end or the student's end as you're nearing that point. It's uh, it's gonna be crazy. Yeah, I, I was noticing all your uh, your Facebook posts about exams and all that. I was telling my wife, I'm like, man, that man's never done working. Like he's just at home right now working, getting no money. <laughs> like, oh yeah, that's just yeah, so my fun. My first couple days of spring break were to try to grade all of these essays and projects so that they could be done so that I could play Defiance uh, without wasting any time. Although I still do not understand how you can be given a project to do a timeline, a timeline, <laughs> and instead, not only do you not do a timeline, but you blatantly copy an essay an essay, not a timeline, that's not only not what your assignment was, but it's from another class, a different kind of class, that you then turn in as a timeline with, just in case there was any confusion that he didn't know that a timeline was what he was supposed to do, with the instructions and rubric for the timeline stapled on the top. It's almost as bad as when my when a, a buddy of mine who used to teach had an essay get turned in that he realized was, of course, plagiarized, and he gave it to the student and said, uh, uh, I'd like you to read this to the class because it's such a fine example. And the kid looks at it and says, Coach, I can't read this because it was in German. <laughs> nice. Uh, or yeah, the, no, or the, or it takes being, a special kind of, of student to do Yeah, or, or being told that the, uh, uh, that the, the, per, the first Persian Gulf War was fought in the early 90s and ended in 1989. <laughs> I thought that was interesting that it, it was fought back in time and whatnot. It's... There are times where you sit back and go, wow. If you, if you really want to laugh, if you're into the educational stuff, I know I'm kind of off on a tangent, check out the website allaboutexplorers.com. It is designed by teachers as a trap for those who are going to plagiarize. And it was why I got a research paper, supposedly, last semester that told me that I think it was a, a Ferdinand Magellan got some of the funding for his mission from uh, Sam Walton and Bill Gates 
and that he was eventually killed by an AK-47. Uh, <laughs> and it was, and the student swore up and down, this has to be real, I found it on a website. So, yeah, I'm glad <laughs> to be online. in spring break now. But enough about that. Mark, what are we talking about this time before I, I let my insanity or the, the, the world that I live in spread too far? Before it bleeds over. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we jump back into the Old Republic realm. This time focusing on the second half, part two, and how it relates to part one, Revan's fate, and fan reactions across the globe. Consider this year's spoiler warning, fanboys, fangirls, and sentients of all ages, because here we go. That's right, and let's get some context here, just like last time around, for those who are trying to fit this all together. Uh, the Knights of the Old Republic stuff starts out with the comic series that goes from 3,964 BBY into the next year, 3,963 BBY, followed then by KOTOR War, the miniseries, in the next year, 3,962 BBY. Then you jump ahead by about six years, and get the first video game, KOTOR 1, so to speak, in which Revan, of course, was introduced. That is in 3,956 BBY. Two years after that, you get the first part of Revan that we covered in our last episode in 3,954 BBY. Then KOTOR 2 picks up three years after the segment in Revan Part 1, uh, called KOTOR, of course, 2, the Sith Lords, 3,951 BBY. Revan Part 2 then takes place, what we're talking about this time, takes place immediately after that in the same year. The epilogue will jump 50 years into the future for 3,901 BBY. The Treaty of Coruscant will be 3,653 BBY, a good 300 years or just about 300 years later. And then, of course, the Old Republic game, thanks to the Old Republic Encyclopedia pinning it down, uh, Leland Chi confirming it, and Wikipedia is still not bothering to change it, um, despite that information. <clears throat> We have the tour game in 3,640 BBY, the entire game apparently set within that year. And we will end this episode in part by talking about where the characters that we know from KOTOR go next based on what is found in the Old Republic. We've mentioned it before. We'll actually go into specifics at the end of this episode. That's right. And, you know, last episode we ended with what had happened to Revan. Uh, you know, we didn't go into too much detail. We're kind of kind of jumping back. Uh, we've got a little special treat that kind of gives you a, a little idea of where we, Revan's going to be at, you know, what he's trying to do. Kind of give you a little point of what point one was, part one was about. Kind of wrap it up real fast. Here, the darkness reigns eternal. There is no sun, no dawn, just the perpetual gloom of night. The only illumination comes from jagged forks of lightning carving a wicked path through angry clouds. In their savage wake, thunder shreds the sky, unleashing a torrent of hard, cold rain. The storm is coming, and there is no escape. 
Revan's eyes snapped open, the primal fury of his nightmare wrenching him awake for the third night in a row. He lay still and quiet, turning his focus inward to ease the pounding of his heart as he silently recited the opening line of the Jedi mantra. There is no emotion. There is peace. A sense of calm settled over him, washing away the irrational terror of his dream. Yet he knew better than to merely dismiss it. The storm that haunted him each time he closed his eyes was more than just a nightmare. Conjured up from the deepest corners of his mind, the storm had meaning. But try as he might, Revan couldn't figure out what his subconscious was trying to tell him. Was it a warning? A long-forgotten memory? A vision of the future? All three? Careful not to wake his wife, he rolled out of bed and went into the refresher to splash some cool water on his face. Catching a glimpse of himself in the mirror, he stopped to study his reflection. Even now, two standard years after rediscovering his true identity, he still had trouble reconciling the face in the mirror with the man he had been before the Jedi Council had turned him back to the light. Revan, Jedi, hero, traitor, conqueror, villain, savior. He was all these things and more. He was a living legend, the embodiment of myth and folklore, a figure that transcended history. Yet all he saw staring back at him was an ordinary man who hadn't slept in three nights. Fatigue was taking its toll. His angular features had become thin and drawn. His pale skin accentuated the dark circles under eyes that stared back at him from deep hollows. Bracing a hand on either side of the sink, he slumped his head and let out a long, low sigh his black shoulder-length hair falling forward to cover his face like a dark curtain. After several seconds, he stood up straight, using the fingers of both hands to sweep his hair back into place. Moving quietly, he made his way from the refresher and across the small living room of his apartment. He proceeded out onto the balcony, where he stopped and stared out across Coruscant's endless cityscape. Traffic in the galactic capital never stopped, and he found the constant buzz and blur of shuttles speeding by soothing. He leaned out over the railing of the balcony as far as he could, his eyes unable to pierce the darkness to make out the planet's surface hundreds of stories below. Don't jump. I don't want to have to clean up the mess. He turned his head at the sound of Bastila's voice behind him. She stood at the threshold of the balcony door, the bedsheet draped around her shoulders to ward off the night's chill. Her long brown hair, normally pulled back up from her forehead into a bun on top and a short ponytail below, hung loose and sleep-tousled. Her face was only partially illuminated by the glow of the city below, yet he could see her lips pressed into a wry smile. Despite her joking words, he could see real concern etched on her features. Sorry, he said, stepping away from the rail and turning toward her. Didn't mean to wake you. Just needed to clear my head. Maybe you should speak to the Jedi Council, 
Bastilus suggested. They might be able to help. You want me to ask the Council for help? He echoed. You must have had too much of the Corellian wine at dinner. They owe you, Bastila insisted. If it weren't for you, Darth Malak would have destroyed the Republic, eliminated the Council, and all but wiped out the Jedi. They owe you everything. Revan didn't answer right away. What she said was true. He had stopped Darth Malak and destroyed the Starforge. But it wasn't that simple. Malak had been Revan's apprentice. Against the wishes of the Council, the two had led an army of Jedi and Republic soldiers against Mandalorian raiders threatening colonies in the Outer Rim, only to return not as heroes, but as conquerors. Revan and Malak had both sought to destroy the Republic, but Malak had betrayed his master, and Revan had been captured by the Jedi Council barely alive, his body and mind shattered. The Council had saved his life, but they had also stripped his memories and rebuilt him as a weapon that could be unleashed against Darth Malak and his followers. The Council doesn't owe me anything, Revan whispered. All the good I've done can't balance out the evil that came before. Bastila brought her hand up and put it gently but firmly over Revan's lips. Don't talk like that. They can't blame you for what happened. Not anymore. You're not the same man you were. The Revan I know is a hero, a champion of the light. You redeemed me after Malak turned me to the dark side. Revan reached up and wrapped his fingers around the delicate hand resting on his lips, then softly pulled it down. Like you and the Council redeemed me. Bastila turned away, and Revan instantly regretted his words. He knew she was ashamed of her involvement in his capture and her role in erasing his memory. What we did was wrong. At the time, I thought we had no other choice, but if I had to do it over again, I... No, Revan said, cutting her off. I wouldn't want you to change anything. If none of this had happened, I might never have found you. She turned back to face him, and he could see the hurt and bitterness lingering in her eyes. What the Council did to you wasn't right, she insisted. They took away your memories. They stole your identity. It came back. Revan assured her, pulling her close and wrapping his arms around her. You have to let go of your anger. She didn't fight his embrace, though she stood rigid at first. Then he felt the tension melting away from her body as she lowered her head onto his shoulder. There is no emotion. There is peace, she whispered, reciting aloud the same words Revan had sought solace in only a few minutes earlier. They stood there in silence, holding each other until Revan felt her shiver. It's cold out here, he said. We should go back inside. Twenty minutes later, Bastila was fast asleep. But Revan lay on the bed with his eyes open, staring at the ceiling. He was thinking about what Bastila had said about the Council taking his identity. As his mind had healed, many of his memories had returned along with his sense of self. But he knew parts were still missing, possibly gone forever. As a Jedi, he knew the importance of letting go of bitterness and anger. But that didn't mean he couldn't still wonder about what he had lost. 
something had happened to him and Malak beyond the Outer Rim. They had gone to defeat the Mandalorians, but they had returned as disciples of the Dark Side. The official story was they had been corrupted by the ancient power of the Starforge. But Revan suspected there was more to it, and he knew it had something to do with his nightmares. A terrible world of thunder and lightning, shrouded in perpetual night. He and Malak had found something. He couldn't remember what it was or where it was, but he feared it on a deep, primal level. Somehow, he knew that whatever the terrible secret might be, it was a threat far greater than the Mandalorians or the Starforge. And Revan was convinced it was still out there. The storm is coming, and there is no escape. The thing I found interesting is, you know, Revan goes to Nathema. Scourge is at Nathema with Darth Neris, and they run across Revan. They capture Revan. But one of the interesting things is that Neris, she goes, I know this man. She said her voice grim. His name is Revan. He's a Jedi and a Republic spy. And, you know, of course, Scourge is like racked with this. A Republic spy? If the Jedi know we exist, they will come for us. They will try to finish the extermination of our species that they began in the Great Hyperspace War. And she goes, our, assistance is, our existence is still hidden. Revan and the other Jedi, a man named Malak, discovered Droman Kos by accident. They were captured before they could return and report their findings to the Republic. When did all this happen, Scourge asked. Five years ago, the Emperor sentenced Revan to death. So it, I, I found that was interesting because, you know, it gives us the insight again about the Emperor and how he is playing on the Sith Empire, the populace's fear of the Jedi and the Republic. And, and that overall extermination of the Sith species that uh, us as readers up to this point had thought had already occurred. You know, keep in mind that up until all this new information in the last, what, three years, I would say, we thought the Sith were already exterminated at this point. You know, th this them being around is all big news. Revan going out and, and rediscovering them is all supposed to be big news to us. But to them, it's old news. They've been hiding. The Emperor himself has been using that threat to also build his power. And, it, it, you know, it, it's interesting, too, that, you know, he sends Revan and Malak back and they break their their hold on it. So he doesn't know, you know, that, that connection, that feedback, you know, that, that aspect of looking through their eyes and knowing what's going on. He doesn't have that. So he's still kind of at a loss as to what happened there. It's really cool how they play that off at the end. And then we go into part two. And as Nathan said, part two, I want to say part two is, is probably where we get more of the negative reactions to the book itself. Uh, Mitra's story, I would say, is not as in-depth as Revan's in part one has been. Uh, you know, we, we in part one we mentioned how, uh, you know, you had a lot of quick mentions of characters, a lot of quick background and stuff like that. That is automatically pre prevalent that that is not the case was Mitra. Uh, you know, we get Mitra's point of view, but not to the same depth that we did with Revan. And I, I really think that that comes from the fact that Drew worked so hard with the first KOTOR, you know, and creating Revan and all that, that, that he knew him so fluently and wasn't part of the process when it came to Mitra's character. So he, I, I'm sure he just dialed it back, but I really think that by doing so, that contrast from part one to part two, it makes part two feel lacking. And I think that that's where a lot of people really don't like this book is they read part two last. And so that was the the overall flavor in their mouth when they got done with the book. I mean, because I, I've noticed that a lot of people really have not liked this 
I, I mean, I, I really like the first part. So for me, the first part ha- has set up the second part looking really good. You know, I'm looking at the, the, the nice happy lenses as I go into it. So when we get in there and we have no mentions to most of the characters in the in the KOTOR 2 game and, and, and most of the KOTOR 2 experience, it's almost all completely left out. The only thing we really focus on is Malachor 5 and what happened during the events before KOTOR 1 while Mitra was serving with Revan during all that stuff. That's really the only depth that we get into that regard. And so for me, that that was a one negative. I really wish there was more as to her points of view and, and the other characters, what was going on with them. Again, even if it was a quick men- mention, you know, I mean, the first part, they were very small references. But for me, that was awesome. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, we definitely could have used a lot of, of little notation, just quick little comments about what's going on since then. We don't really get that much. I mean, we didn't get it a lot for many of the characters back with Revan in part one, but at least some of them we saw. There was no Carthonassi, but otherwise, most of the other characters were at least mentioned. Not so much for this one. Although, we got to give a lot of credit, though, to this, that just like, you know, it finally starts to set some things in stone that were sort of out there and just big question marks lingering over us uh, for a while, as far as Revan's background, the background of the Mandalorian Wars, what's the deal with the whole thing about him going off, he found this other threat. What was the threat? It was hanging out there for quite a while until, you know, they start working uh, towards eventually getting to the Old Republic project where they start saying, well, it's actually the Sith Empire that he found, the remnants of it. And, well, what are the implications of that? Here's this MMO that's coming and all. Um, One thing I was very happy to see was that uh, from 2004 until 2006, the character that we played as in KOTOR 2, the Sith Lords, was basically just the Exile. Uh, no definite gender, no definite look, anything like that. We just had the Exile. Heaven forbid there be an actual name for the character or anything. Uh, granted, we still don't know what Revan's name was if he had a name prior to being the Revanchist and then being known as Revan. But in this case, what we had was a character who was known as the Exile. Uh, finally, in 2006, we got the new Essential Guide to Droids that started to refer to the Exile as a female, so at least we got a gender... And now this book gives us finally a name for her, Mitra Surik. And thanks to the, the uh, Old Republic MMO video game, we not only have that, we have an official look for the character. So it really was, while it's, it's a time, I guess, for the Revan side of things to tie up a bunch of loose ends storyline-wise, in this case, it, it seemed like with Mitra, it was much less about tying up story loose ends, aside from the ones that tied into Revan, so much as it was about tying up the different uh, uh, amorphous things about the character that up to this point hadn't really been addressed before. Finally, the Exile feels like a character in her own right. Uh, although, in being this, in building her characterization and her bond with Revan, we do also get, as I mentioned last time, I won't harp on it this time because I did so much last time, we get that tearing down of Bastilla Shan in relation to her all the jealousy things and all that kind of stuff that winds up playing into it. So, I don't know. I mean, I like the way they characterize Mitra and at least finally give her something other than the rather surface-level uh, characterization we've gotten before. But at the same time, the rest of what's around her suffers from it, and they spend so much time focusing on her in relation to Revan, like you said, with Malachor Five and whatnot, that we don't get the time to see what happens to those other characters. Though one has to wonder, you know... It, we, we would love to have seen it 
because it would have just been cool to know what happened with some of those characters after the story, but would it have been relevant? You know, I mean, there's only so much uh, fan service you can put into something and side references you can put into something before it starts to feel very heavy-handed and you're sitting there thinking, what does this have to do with the story? Why are you bothering to mention this in the story? Um, so I don't know. I'm wondering if we as fans are perceiving this in perhaps a wrong way when we criticize part two so much for what it's lacking, because I'm wondering if that was a conscious choice to not have those types of things in it so it could be a more focused story and not sort of wander around into nothing but fan service territory. Well, I mean, I, I see where you're coming from that. I, I think that, you know, just like with the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy and, and you know, you have fans like me and you that, that enjoy both of them. And then you have those fans that only enjoy one or the other. You have the same thing with KOTOR 1 and 2. Um, and, and the fact that, that Mitra was definitely a female character canon, uh, you know, that, that made the KOTOR 2 story definitely the, the more female POV prominent of the two stories. And thus, you know, you have that contingent of fandom that liked KOTOR 2 more than one are probably going to be the ones that are really kind of more irked with this book or really felt let down. Um, I, I do think that there was an opportunity there if they would have explored Mitra's character a little more, maybe filled in that that depth. Then when we get to the big reveal at the end, the twist that, you know, for those of you that have seen the tour, you know, MMO, know what's going to happen with her. So you kind of had an idea of what was going to happen there. But but when that twist happens, I think you would have had a little more delivery on the character side of things because you'd have got to know her a little more. Uh, and I think that that was kind of missed that opportunity. But yeah, it, it might be something that that they needed to leave out. It definitely was something where she drives more the Revan story. You know, it's like she's going to find Revan, and she meets up with Bastila. And because T three has sought her out, we find out what happened to T three, how he managed to get off of uh, Nathema, and they, it, we did get a little more Bastila action, as Nathan said in the last episode. You know how how. She was more pining and, and jealous of Mitra. Uh, but I, I think that that added jealousy is the only way you're going to get any little bit of backstory for Mitra here, though, is because we never really get inside Mitra's head. I mean, when we do, it's it's very limited. And so through Bastila's jealousy, we're able to tell that there is a a deeper relationship there between them. Because keep in mind, in the, in the Tor MMO video, it gives you the impression that there was a relationship almost romantic between the exile and Revan. There was a love there and, and, and stuff like that. And so, you know, I, I, I think that that worked in regards to that. I keep that in mind, that trailer, you know, that aspect of, of her showing up, uh, the little Yoda dude that, that was contacted by her when she showed up to tell him, Hey, go find Revan, you know, all that. So I, I really think that that was working. I mean, keep in mind when we grab this book, and, and we look at the at the bottom of it, underneath Drew's name, it says, based on the epic video game from Bioware and LucasArts, how can a book set before it be based on it unless they were in planning on tying it together? So I have to keep that video prevalent in my mind when I try to criticize the book. And I, and I think that that might be where a lot of the people that are really hating the book, uh, they probably didn't know so much about that. Maybe that's where where the anger comes from, is not knowing that going in. I, I tried to take it with the grain of salt. Oh, yeah. This is definitely, if you, if you were to characterize, I think, the approaches taken in both of the two parts. The first part of Revan that focuses on Revan and Candorous. That is very much a, you played KOTOR 1, you enjoyed KOTOR 1, let's give you a few twists that'll tie this also into the Old Republic MMO. The whole thing about, you know, he 
They were actually, they found the Sith Empire, they were actually sent back out, essentially as a vanguard force, but they sort of broke with some of the, uh, some of the mind control, which you could argue either, either adds depth to or takes depth from, you know, the, the decisions made by Revan, how much of it was, were his choices, how much of it wasn't. Um, but it's very much a, you played that, let's give you more depth and let's fill in some gaps for you. It's the, uh, the, the part that gives us answers. It is very much what we like to see in a lot of EU novels when it comes to how they address previous holes in the story. The second part is very much a, okay, now we're going to bridge it to the Old Republic. You could sort of say that the first part is based on KOTOR, the second part is based simply on Tor. Uh, and the thing about that is, the end point is already in mind. It's, we didn't, I think a lot of people approach this book thinking it's going to give us answers to what we saw before. It'll take place after what we cared about before, forgetting the fact that it does lead up into something else. The end point is already known. Uh, very much like, you know, when the prequel films came out, we knew what the end point was. The question was, how are they going to get there? We know that Scourge is somehow going to wind up living past this era into the Old Republic video game era because he play he is a companion to your Jedi Knight character in the game. We know that Revan must somehow become a prisoner and kept alive for the next 300 and some odd years uh, by the Emperor thanks to what we see in the flashpoints in the Old Republic game. We know that Mitra must be a Force ghost by then, and so on, and so on, and so on. There are all of these things that were set in stone. This had to basically try to give us a decent adventure while setting up all of those things to take place. Um, he couldn't give it a triumphant ending in any sense, because otherwise the setup for the game would not have connected. And the problem, of course, is the Old Republic, when they gave us the information about the game, until the Old Republic Encyclopedia, um, which only barely covers some of it, there really hasn't been a way for fans who didn't play the MMO to know what the heck happens in the MMO. All the information has been backstory, backstory, backstory. Treaty of Coruscant, first parts of the Great Galactic War, here's how they lead up to the treaty, etc., etc. It's not, here's what happens in the game. We get the encyclopedia, we get some references in Annihilation, you get one or two references at best in The Lost Sons. Everything else is prior to. So no wonder people got into this expecting something different from part two than what we got. But if you, if you don't have that frame of reference, as you were mentioning, you're going to find this part unsatisfying. The ending of this one, and I'm, I'll admit, I read this before seeing much of what happens in The Old Republic. I knew that Revan was a prisoner in there that gets freed. I didn't know any of the details about it at the time. didn't know anything about Scourge at the time. But I would compare the ending of this in a lot of ways to the ending of Millennium Falcon. Spoilers for Millennium Falcon, the thing they were looking for the entire freaking book wasn't really what it was supposed to be. They're supposed to be playing off of Maltese Falcon, unless you knew that was what they were doing. The ending of Millennium Falcon as a novel sucks. It's one of the worst endings in a Star Wars novel, okay, unless you see that connection. Same thing here. I think people would hate the ending of this book unless they know what it's leading up to and they're able to say, ah, that's how they got there, not, ah, that's where they were going. Because if it's, that's where they were going, it sucks. If it's, that's how they got there, ooh, that's neat. Well, and even at the beginning of this second part, I mean, Mitra's talking with, with uh, Basil, and she goes, I think our path is clear. I will go to Nathema, and I will see what I can learn of Revan's fate. 
this whole book is about Revan's fate. And then we get to a point where even the character's like, well, we need to find out what happened to Revan now. Because at the end of the first one, he gets prisoner, and boom, three years go by, and we're like, wait, what happened to Revan? Now even they're looking. And I like also we have a, a quick reference to uh, HK. She's like, I left HK under the supervision of the new Jedi Council. I didn't think it was safe to have him roaming the galaxy. I wanted, and I assumed he would be content to stay with the Jedi waiting for the orders. But he disappeared soon after I left. Now I realize he's probably gone in search for Revan again. It, you know, little things like that. But when Basla, you know, you, you mentioned before the, the, the de-characterization of Basla. And, and, and you know, I, I see where you come from. But again, I disagree because for me, I, I like the way that it showed the conflict that she's having about having left the Order. Because for her and Revan, they left the Order kind of like the Lost 20 for better ideals, for higher ideals. You know, it wasn't that they were they were tainted, although the Jedi themselves are like, oh, you guys are her you guys are heretical over here. You guys, you quiet with the heretical viewers. We don't want to hear that nonsense. But for them, you know, they're looking kind of at the order in, in, in that aspect of like, you know, they're not quite getting it. So she's having conflict with, you know, being a regular person or, or someone not with the Jedi order. And yet the emotions that, that come and, and conflict with what she knew before. You know, when when uh, Mitra talks about she's going to go and learn Revan's face, Basta goes, you? She said, her, her voice showing more anger and surprise than she intended. What about me? You expect me to just sit here and wait, not even knowing if he's dead or alive? And then Mitra says, what, a, what has changed since Revan left? She asked softly. You stayed behind to care for your son. Are you prepared to leave him behind now? Of course not, Basla spat. She almost added, I'll bring him with me. But at the last second, she realized how reckless and ridiculous that would be. And I liked how there was that conflict inside her where, you know, her natural emotional reactions come forth and then her Jedi training kind of kicks in. And, and you see that conflict back and forth. It For me, I thought that that was an, an adding to the character because she, she hasn't seen her husband in three years. She's been raising a kid on her own for three years. I can see how very frustrated she is. You know, she was supposed to go on this mission. The baby, you know, I mean, trying not to resent your child because the child's the reason why you're not with your man. Your man, you have this feeling he's out there, but you can't feel him because he's cut off in the stasis thing. Kind of like I, I Jedi when Koran's reaching out for Mirage, you know, he's like panicking. He's, he knows she's not dead, but he, he fears she is, you know, that same scenario. And, and I like the way that that played off back and forth. But I think, you know, you said it a second ago. You could take these different ways. I mean, you could see it as as a adding to the character or taking away from the character, you know, all the way around. And I I I, I like that about this book. You know, I mean, I I kind of went with the it adds to the character. I always try to look at things that way. So for me, I saw a lot of really good opportunities here. Yeah, I saw some missed ones, uh, you know, and I, I don't want to be too critical, but at the same time, I was I was kind of gushing on part one. And there were a lot about part two, especially as we get closer to the end, that I just I really felt like there were a lot of blanks left wide open. And it was mainly Mitra's point of view. I really think, you know, like if they'd have gone back there and filled it in a little more, maybe that that would have made it a more well-rounded book. Because I really feel like this book had the potential to be the next Darth Plagueis. I mean, there was a lot of hype. I mean, everybody loves Revan. And if they don't, everybody's curious about him. Yeah, I still say, I mean, this was, when I look at this book, I don't look at it in the same light that I look at, say, Deceived or Fatal Alliance, right? In these other, or Annihilation, in these other books that are so, uh, the Old Republic heavy. I think of those and I think of the game, I think of the comics, I think of that as one whole. I look at this, it feels more like KOTOR and it feels a lot, that is the games, not the comics, 
Uh, and it feels very much like Plagueis. It feels kind of like Plagueis Light. It tries to do what Plagueis did, but it's working with less source material overall, and it's working with the end uh, much more in mind. I mean, you think about Darth Plagueis. You know, one of the things that we realize is a big shocker, and it's been a while since the book came out, so I don't think this is going to freak anybody out, is that Darth Plagueis is still alive into The Phantom Menace. Okay? He dies actually right around the same time that Maul dies at that point. So Sidious doesn't become the Sith Master until the end of the book. It's always two there are. You know, which is this? Well, it kind of depends on when in the movie you're looking. That, I think, was one of those things where the ending had to be that Plagueis was gone, for instance, but at what point? They had a lot more leeway with that, I think. So this sort of feels like it tried to do that, it tried to tie things together, but from less places. I would certainly still put that in the same category, though. I mean, they're probably the, the closest, most analogous books I can think of when it comes to their approach to the storytelling. But, yeah, mm -hmm. what are you going to do when you've got to get these characters ready to go? I mean, I, I think anybody who was reading this book, who never looked at the Old Republic MMO, would be shocked to find that Scourge winds up being a Jedi Knight companion. That he winds up being yeah. a light side character's companion. And Scourge, to me, is the Teal'c of this series. If you've ever watched Stargate SG-1, think back to the first episode, Children of the Gods, right? Uh, O'Neill is, they're, they're in a prison. O'Neill yells out to Teal'c, trying to get him to realize that, you know, that, that he can change sides, it's going to work, you know, he could be able to assist the heroes and it would work out fine. Uh, says, you know, I can save these people! And I sort of picture Scourge very much like Teal, because at that moment, that's when Teal looks at him and says, Many have said that. And then he turns and blasts away his own brethren and says, But you were the first I believe could do it. And then goes with them. Um, that's very much like this with Scourge. He knows the Emperor is mad. He knows he's destined to lead the Empire to destruction, and perhaps the Sith species to destruction. And he doesn't want to see that. Very much like what Nerys wants. He needs to find a way to make that happen, and for the moment, he can't act on his own. But Revan and Mitra, especially once he realizes, which I think is funny, that these visions that Revan's been lying about until he finally has a real one, um, uh, had been pointing to someone coming to rescue him, and <gasps> it's Mitra, right? He, he meets Mitra, realizes how this fits in with these false visions that Revan's been saying that are sort of tied into his real visions he later has, and it's like, it's like aha, we need to bring down the Emperor. And you were the first, I believe, could do it. It's very much that type of character, but I'm not sure that anyone reading Part 1 would have expected that out of Scourge. So it feels somewhat awkward in Part 2 if you also don't know, again, where the character is going. I mean, imagine watching the prequels not knowing that Anakin is going to eventually turn into Darth Vader, just knowing there is a Darth Vader out there somewhere. Imagine the shock that someone would have seeing that uh, and yeah. how much under a rock they would have had him in living. Well, and, and Scourge's story is really the, the for me, I mean, I I did not know anything about him being in the tour game at the time. So, you know, for me, this was his story. This was like his first appearance. I did not at all know that he was already a previously established character. So, you know, from that standpoint, from the EU standpoint, literature-wise, this is his tale. You know, I mean, it's just as much Revan's fate. But we're also seeing that, and I, I thought they did a good job of that from part one to part two of giving the why he would side with the Jedi uh, apparently more than once. Um, another cool thing, though, is is when Mitra goes to Nathema 
And this is the location that the emperor did his ritual that became, you know, he created this void. And, and they, they talk about the void. You know, she could feel the void pressing in on her from all sides. At the same time, as it was pulling on her, trying to rip away the very essence of her existence. Nature abhors a vacuum. The emptiness was trying to fill itself with her energy. For an instant, she felt as if she were going to become undone, her physical body discomporiating into trillions of subatomic particles that would scatter across the entire surface of Nathema. No, she screamed in her, in her mind. The void will not take me. I am more than a, co a collection of random matter and particles. I am a living being. I am Mitra Surik. I liked how in that moment of her point of view, it kind of gives you that feeling that the void, that whatever this ritual did and what it did in the forest, the hole that it created, it almost gives you that feeling like it itself has a will. Like it is hungry. It is feeding kind of like the dark side. You know, when, when, when they use it more, they, they thirst to use it more. They need it more. They feed off of it. They feed off the power. They just got to have more, more, more. And it seems that same scenario. And the same thing is happening with the Sith Emperor. And that's part of where they're afraid. They're afraid he's going to do this again. He's going to continue to, to amass the power and wipe everything else out. So, so that's an interesting aspect. And so she's in a rush to get off the planet. She has T3. They go into a government building sector for it, for, uh, for all intents and purposes. I like the way it worked. T3 kind of does this quick little power burst. Uh, it, it surges into the system. He's able to then hack into the system, get all the records. They get off the planet, and she puts it all together after the fact. And, and she gets the government point of view, the documents, tens of thousands of them. And she learns about how the people in Athema spent their last days completely terrified, desperate, and they, and they knew it was just a matter of time until the Jedi found him because this is all about what Lord uh, Vidyat, uh, you know, the Sith Emperor at the time, he was just totally preying upon their fears. Uh, he had speeches that were filled with graphic warnings of what the Jedi would do when they arrived. I mean, they, rec they had records that confirmed his speeches had been broadcast and transmitted across the whole empire. I mean, he was totally doing like a, a Adolf Hitler, you know, rallying them all up, but under the fear of, you know, these guys are going to come in and wipe us out. And these are all the nasty, horrible things they're going to do to us. And we got to be ready. And I just, the way that the Sith side of, of preying on his own people, I mean, that again gets back to that, how evil he is, that even the Sith themselves would team up with the Jedi to bring him down. I liked how that all builds up. Yeah, they do a very good job of sort of building the bits and pieces here. I just, honestly, I wish there had been more characterization for Mitra. It felt like a lot of what we saw in the early part for Mitra was, and granted, it is what it is. It's following in Revan's footsteps to figure out where he went, but some of the revelation, so to speak, that we get through her are ones we already got through him, so it felt like uh, retreading a little bit of old ground, I guess, for that, that particular part of the book. Not horribly so, uh, but there were, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, throughout the book, you'll hit these pitfalls every so often uh, that keep it from being as great as it could have been. Well, and this is one, like, like I said, it, it, I think this, this part really goes again into establishing the emperor. And that's another one I love about this book because it's the only one that really gives you in a book form more of those details. Uh, you know, we were recently asked the question, you know, is the Sith emperor a Sith or a human because he's been described as both? Well, as we've mentioned in the last one, he was a Sith. He later learns how to transfer his body or his, his spirit from his body into other bodies so he can possess a human and things like that. Uh, but, but we also learn, you know, again from Mitra and how, uh, he, he ended up sending out people to find the location of Dromedkos. You know, we mentioned in the last episode about how many Sith homeworlds were there that had been lost. Uh, but 
she talks about, or, or from her point of view, the plan was both horrifying and brilliant. In addition to becoming more powerful than Mitra could imagine, the Emperor could blame the extinction of his homeworld on the Jedi, further panicking the remaining Sith worlds. Then he could have offered them a glimmer of hope, promising to lead all of those who swore loyalty to him to a place where the Jedi would never find them. If the Emperor, and see, I'm just swapping out his name, I, I don't like to say the Vidyat because I can't say it right, but if the Emperor had been as cunning as Mitra imagined him to be, he wouldn't have led his followers directly to Droman Kos. Instead, he would have taken them on a long and trying exodus, and I think of Battlestar Galactica here, <laughs> during which the Sith would have been forced to turn to him time and time again for support and guidance, their dependence on him growing until they went from leader to hero to savior. By the time they finally reached Droman Kos, they would likely have worshipped him as a god, all-powerful and all-knowing. And I love the history and how he just solidified his, his power inside the Sith Emperor, uh, the Empire. And, and, you know, it, it gets back to that, you know, it, which Emperor was more powerful. And it's like, you know, yeah, I could see how, the, how for those that really see Palpatine as, as the big bad, you know, this can kind of knock him out of the way. But I see this guy as kind of like uh, Alexander the Great. You know, and, and like maybe Palpatine's Napoleon or, you know, another great leader that comes much later. You know, I mean, it, it, I kind of like this is something to aim for. Like, you know, this emperor was so had it down. How much can I emulate? And so we see Palpatine with all these super weapons. And then later in the EU and the Bantam area, the super weapon of the week. That makes sense now. Why? Because this emperor, he did the same thing and proved that it could work. Kind of reminds me of the surprising comment in uh, it was the the Slaves of the Republic arc of the Clone Wars cartoon series, where Palpatine slash Sidious comments to Dooku that you know long have Sith empires been built on the backs of slaves, uh, and for this we will need many, et cetera, et cetera. That really kind of fits in with this idea that he is going by precedent, and I found it interesting that they would make that comment given the fact that we don't see the slavery yet in that era. But we have seen it in the past, uh, including in this particular game and whatnot. So, I mean, it's kind of cool to see the way that they are, are repeating history. I do still think it somewhat makes Palpatine into something that makes him not nearly as, as badass of a Sith as he's made out to be. Because certainly these Sith empires previously had quite a bit of power. But I guess it, it all depends on your perspective, because by that point, by Palpatine's point, the known galaxy is much larger, the Republic is mu much larger than it was, so in theory, the space that Palpatine rules should be larger than what the ones we see in the Old Republic or yeah. uh, or the Tales of the Jedi books actually rule. It's just one of those things where the powers of the Sith seem like they are above and beyond what we see with Palpatine, whereas perhaps his success is greater. True. A another scene that I really liked and the way they played it out, I think it was over a few chapters, is the dance between Revan and Scourge inside the prison cell. You know, it was like, who was playing who here? And, and they really did a good back and forth. I mean, you know, you'd go from, from Darth Scourge's point of view as he's going in and he's feeding Revan information to do his interrogation, not to break Revan, to kind of lure him into a false uh, confidence. You know, I'm the only one going to see him. We have our own little dance where I come in every day. I say so much. I get a little information. I, I plant my seed. At the same time, he's trying to learn from Revan, who is someone that has been Sith and Jedi, who has seen both sides. So he's trying to get whatever he can to add to his skill arsenal to come at the Emperor down the road. 
Meanwhile, you have Revan's point of view where he is coming at Sturge and trying to give him, like like Nathan had said earlier, you know, these false visions. Uh, someone's coming to get me, you know, doing whatever he can. And, and they're playing. I love the chess game going on here. You know, Drew did a really cool job of playing up that. And, and it, you know, I, I want to say with the first book, like, had a really good pacing. The second book seemed like a lot of the first few chapters was kind of like events that had been spread out over weeks to months. And then it all wraps up in the last three or four chapters or, or even six or eight. You know, it just felt like that last bit was all like one event just all happening, just spread out. You know, like it felt like an episode of 24, you know, where you're literally living that hour. And then the other thing, you know, I, I always love how circumstances in the force kind of play into things. You know, as Mitra ends up meeting up with Scourge, she ends up kind of stumbling on Satchel in a, in a way. And then, you know, he, of course, brings Scourge in and they, they meet up together. And I love the way that that played off. You know, it was like, I was like, oh, is that fate or is that actually supposed to be uh, what's going down here? So, you know, as they're together, she's like immediately she's like, you know, let, let Revan go. He's like, he tells her she's a he's a prisoner. She's immediately we got to get him out. And he's like, it's not so simple. You know, they got to actually wait and do it just right. They have to, you know, have the, the time, the plan. And so we go from there and we go into the plotting of how they're going to get Revan out. But at the same time, we have Scourge being kind of plagued by his own dreams now. He's starting to have dreams. It, it, it kind of gave me the the Jason Solo as as Lord Cadis uh, feeling, you know, where he's able to kind of flow walk and see every potential future. Because that's kind of, Revan's explaining to him how visions work for the Jedi and stuff like that. So Scourge has been having dreams and he doesn't know if they're visions or if they're just dreams. And he's starting to see, you know, that they're not going to win that Revan's going to get struck down. Mitra's going to get struck down. He's going to get struck down. The Emperor's going to succeed. And so that's starting to play on him. And and I love the way, you know, from this, from his point of view, that that is a very prominent plot. You know, in part one, I'd mentioned uh, the relationship between Satchel, Murtaugh, and uh, Lord Scourge. In this, you know, we, we see what happens to Murtaugh. I won't, I won't spoil that, but I will spoil what happens to Satchel because I, I really felt it was an intimate Sithly demise. You know, we, we get to a moment there where uh, Scourge comes in and decides that he needs to make his move. He has to do his betrayal. And so he tells Satchel, you know, give me everything you have on Lord Neris because, you know, he knows that, that Satchel is a pretty smart individual. He's got no four skills. So the only thing he could possibly bring to the table is espionage. So... As any spy, he's got to have blackmail on his boss. Give it to me, he says. As soon as Satchel gives it to him, he becomes worthless. And I love the way that, you know, he, he basically puts him in a chokehold, brings him in really close, and then snaps his neck. It's a very intimate scene. You're just <laughs> like, whoa. I mean, the way that played out, I, I love that. The, even when he did the, the earlier torture in the first half where he cut off the tendrils, everything he did with Satchel was very intimate. There was a very back and forth there. And when it happened, and, and I, I, I think this is the part of me that loves the Sith books because I really get off on the dark side of things when I play video games. I'm always using my Sith lightning and stuff. But I really enjoyed that moment. I was like, yes, pop that sucker's neck. I, I, I just, I totally gave in, man. 
Reminds me a lot of, I mean, the, the, the whole issue with Nearest and backstabbing Zedrix, I think was his name, and uh, the whole acting against the Sith Emperor, and what does Satchel know, and how can he be used in all this, reminds me a lot of uh, a song of, of Ice and Fire, uh, the, which most folks know as Game of Thrones. I'm in the middle of reading A Dance with Dragons, the last of them so far right now. Uh, Satchel in a lot of ways reminds me of Varys, the Spider-Man. He's the one who makes it his business to know what needs to be known, uh, but his value is based entirely on that information. What does he know? What can he do for me and such? Um, but you could all you could argue, I guess here that uh, in the game of Sith Thrones, as they say, you know, you win or you die, or you win or you die or die, but somehow have your spirit still living to inhabit another body or something. Maybe it's not quite as clear cut in uh, uh, the Sith Empire as it might be in Westeros. <laughs> well, another really cool little throwback or throw forward or however we're going to do it, touch on, homage, whatever, is the Imperial Guards, uh, the red-suited Imperial Guards. I mean, we don't know they look exactly like Emperor Palpatine's red-suited Senate Guards or his Imperial Guards, but I I'd like to think there's some similarity there. Uh, you know, it I like how, you know, Scourge takes the discs of Satchels. He goes to the Emperor, and now he betrays Nerys. You know, he tells them all about everything that's been going on, the plotting behind their backs, because the Emperor is their distraction. He's going to be sending the Imperial Guards in so hot and heavy into Nerys' business that they're going to be totally not looking at what Scourge is doing with Mitra. And it works. Unfortunately, it works a little too well, though, because the Emperor decides, I'm not just going to take out Nerys. He wipes out the entire Dark Council, which, you know, is another awesome little you know, throwback move there, you know, Palpatine takes out the Senate. What's he do? This emperor takes out the dark council and then stocks it with his own people. But see, that's also part of the play. There is that scourge thinks he's going to get to be one of the new dark council members. He thinks that it's going to be a prime. He does not at this moment know that he's going to end up getting the new title, the emperor's wrath. So that was also an interesting twist. That scourge doesn't get what he was promised. He also has a twist that comes down on it. Um, you know, we get to page 294, though, when they are actually, they're freeing Revan, they've got him, they're about to turn and escape, and Darth Nerys herself shows up. I loved this scene. The air around her began to crackle and grow hot as she gathered herself for the killing blow. Scourge felt the energy build inside her, and he knew he would be powerless to stop it. Nerys was too powerful. Her command of the dark side was too strong. Gaze upon me and see your doom, she declared. I am Darth Nerys, Lord of the Sith. I am the conqueror of Drezzi, the destroyer of Meldia. I am a member of the Dark Council. Scourge braced himself for the end. Just then, Revan emerged from his cell. He had pulled the hood of his robe up to cover his head, and he wore the red and gray mask, hiding his face. A dozen bolts of lightning sprang from Nerys's hand, arcing across the room to incinerate her enemies. Instead of leaping back into the cell to avoid the deadly attack, Revan stepped forward to intercept it. Both hands were held in front of him, his arms fully extended at shoulder height, his thumbs touching and his fingers splayed wide. He drew the bolts of lightning into his waiting grasp, channeling them away from their intended targets and absorbing their power. I am Revan Reborn, he said to Nerys, and before me you are nothing. Nerys's eyes went white as Revan unleashed the power of her own tack against her. She tried to throw up another force shield, but the bolts ripped it apart and continued on unabated. The lightning engulfed her and in 
the intense heat consuming her instantly, leaving only a pile of charred ash. That scene was so awesome. I mean, it reminded me of Yoda when Yoda takes Dooku's Sith lightning and brings it into his hand and then ejects it back. I mean, the way Drew described it and, the, and just the, the sheer awesomeness of Revan at this point, because Bastila had his mask the whole time. She'd been hiding it, holding on to it. So when Mitra goes off looking for Revan, the last thing Bastila does is gives her that and says, give this to him. It may help him. When he gets the mask and holds the mask, suddenly click, 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 all the tumblers fall in place. All the memories of his past get unlocked. He's able to see inside the Emperor's mind. He's able to tell them about what was going on inside the Emperor's head. I mean, you know, what is it? Page 305. Yes, that's the one. Uh, you know, he's talking about what was going on inside her. He goes, when the Emperor broke my will, he looked into my mind and I was able to see the reflection of his own evil. Invading the Republic is only the first step of his plan. He was be he has become obsessed with power and immortality. The dark side is like a cancer inside him. It grows faster than he can feed it. It will consume an entire he has consumed an entire world, but he still hungers. And it is his hunger as and with his hunger comes an all-consuming fear. He has lived a thousand years. He knows he could live many thousand more. He is terrified of death. And that's one of the interesting things about how this emperor is, is that, you know, even though he's immortal, he's afraid to die. And, and it gets back to that aspect of the void. You know, I was saying, you know, is it sentient? Is, did he create something when he became his immortality? Did he sell his soul to the dark side and as such created an entity in the force opposite of the force you know i, I mean it, it sounds far-fetched but from an eu standpoint is it i mean we have waru the anti-force being i mean things of that nature i mean there is a battle between the jedi and the sith and if the will of the force demands that palpatine does all he does why you know, there's a dualism to it, but then there is that aspect that Revan even thinks that the Force is alive. So maybe, just maybe, through this, they created something else. I just get that feeling from times. And this book definitely gives a feeling of a birth to that, you know, the, the void, as they call it. That aspect of the, the all-consuming aspect of the dark side. You know, I mean, what if there was something more? What if something was born out of that ritual you know getting back to as last episode i mentioned the differences in the ritual on uh, page 336 we see the ritual happening with scourge he's hooked up to a bunch of equipment and stuff i have a hard time seeing that as the same type of ritual that the emperor would do to get his power i mean he suckered all those lords into it you know i, I just have a hard time seeing him pulling a pain being hooked up to all these equipment okay guys uh, uh you see all this stuff feeding into me don't worry don't worry it's gonna help us all i, I just there's different aspects to how that ritual went down yet the emperor still makes it seem like the price the constant never-ending pain the almost crippling pain is the cost for that immortality it doesn't matter how you got there uh one last thing i i wanted to touch on here real fast uh the part that made me tear up even uh was page uh, 328 and in it we finally learn the fate of t3 I'm going to uh, go ahead and spoil this because it's it, it just, for me, it was a powerful scene. And like I said, it's one that uh, immediately made me, you know, tear up. They're in the midst of their attack on the Emperor. Revan has been knocked down. Mitra and Scourge are fighting off the Imperial Guard, buying Revan enough time to go at, at him first. They're trying to wrap up the Imperial Guard and get in and help Revan. 
Revan's down and the Emperor's about to unleash some more lightning on him and kill him. And, uh, you know, Revan's body was engulfed in agony as the electricity coursed through his body. His skin began to boil and blister, the flesh on his face melting and sticking to the superheated metal of his mask as the Emperor poured more and more power into him. Through the days of indescribable pain, he saw T3M4 rushing to help him. The droid let loose with his flamethrower, bathing the Emperor in fire. At the last instant, the Emperor cocooned himself in the force to save himself from being incinerated, breaking his, for his focus on Revan. The Jedi collapsed to the ground, burned but still alive, the hilt of his extinguished lightsaber lying on the floor less than a meter beyond his grasp. Almost too weak to move, Revan managed to rise his head just in time to see the Emperor turn on the brave little astromech. In a tremor rippled through the air as the Emperor unleashed the full power of the force against the defenseless droid. T3 never stood a chance. The little droid exploded into a million pieces. Internal circuits and external casing obliterated in a single instant. No! Revan screamed from the ground as bits of his friend rained down on him in the form of unrecognizable shrapnel. Sorry, that still tears me up. I, I've always wondered what happened to T3. And now we know. And, you know, that, that, that still sits with me rough because, I mean, I don't see how you can fix a droid after that. I mean, you know, we've seen R2 go through some things and manage to get put back together. HK has been tore down and, and rebuilt more times than I can count off the top of my head. But this reminds me of Mace Windu on Dantooine. Against some clone uh, or some uh, separatist droids, you know. I mean, I, I just, I don't see T3 coming back after that one, guys. I mean, that's, uh, that wouldn't hit me hard. And I want to say, you know, even though we see the later betrayal that, that Scourge does in the middle of all that, when he turns and at the last second turns and, and does what he does, I mean, I, I don't know. Do, do we want to throw that last spoiler? Or do we want to leave something for him? I mean, I, I just dropped a major bomb with T3. Well, we almost, we almost have to have that to understand where, how this all fits together at the end. I mean, you've got this scene where it's kind of odd. Revan is making his move. Okay? Revan is making his move against the Emperor. It looks like he's not going to be able to make it. In comes in Scourge and Mitra, supposedly to help him, only Scourge has yet another vision right? Which, of course, as Yoda would say, you know, could be misinterpreted. Uh, he has another vision in which he sees a Jedi bringing down the Emperor, uh, the hero of Tython, as it's called, the Jedi Knight character in the Old Republic, um, sees that character bringing down the Emperor, only he realizes, wait, this Jedi Knight is not Mitra, it's not Revan, this is going to happen, but it's not going to happen now. He needs to find a way to bide his time. And in doing so, to ingratiate himself with the Emperor and save his own life so that he can continue plotting against the Emperor in the future, he betrays Mitra, kills her, hence her being a Force ghost in the Old Republic, and we sort of get what amounts to a really, really down ending to this book. We don't wind up with a happy ending in any sense whatsoever, other than the idea that, well, Revan is still alive, Scourge is still alive, Mitra's spirit is still there, so at least there is still hope they can do something later. But given the fact that we already know that that's where the Old Republic MMO is going to wind up going, they're left with what amounts to a really depressing end to this book. I think that's why they have to jump 50 years ahead and see that 
Bastilla and the Revan family still live on to give us any sense of having even the remotest smile at the end of the book. But I don't know. I, I like mm-hmm. the, the idea that they give us a final fate for T3 is pretty cool. It explains why he doesn't show up again later. But at the same time, uh, it just adds to the feeling of hopelessness to the end of this book. And I think that's why, another reason why, there are a lot of fans who dislike at least the second half of this book. Because it has no hope whatsoever of ending on a positive note. That That is true. I, I liken it to Empire Strikes Back, though. I mean, I love that movie because the Empire was winning. I mean... To me, I think every now and again, you do have to have a book like this. I mean, when the moment happens, you know, getting back to that whole, you know, him having all these different visions. I loved how, again, it gets back to that Jason Solo feel. You know, I mean, for Scourge, everything stopped. You know, the universe kind of came to slow motion and then everything started to move again. And everything started happening in slow motion and started to step forward. And then he had that sudden moment of clarity. He saw the Emperor lying, defeated at the feet of a powerful Jedi. But that Jedi was neither Revan nor Mitra. And the Sith Lord knew what he had to do. Instead of advancing with his two companions, Scourge stepped to the side so that he was standing directly behind Mitra. There was a flicker in his consciousness as the universe snapped back to full speed and he slid the blade of his lightsaber between her shoulders. I mean, it, it literally happened that fast. And, you know, I, I knew she was going to die. So the betrayal wasn't upsetting in that regard. I knew it had to happen. It happened so fast that I actually liked it. I mean, it took me off guard. I knew she was going to die. But I didn't see that coming. And they literally took it to the last second. I'm like, how is this going to end? I mean, I, I knew that I knew she wasn't going to make it out of it. But I was like, is it going to be the emperor that kills her? I, I truly thought so. I thought she was going to sacrifice herself almost in the, in the way T3 did. I, I was expecting some form of betrayal from Scorch, but I wasn't expecting that. And then he sits there and he turns around and, and, and blows a bunch of smoke up the Emperor's uh, nostrils. But I, I just I found it interesting. And, and, and since you've played and you know that Scourge ends up being a companion of the Jedi later, and you mentioned that he ends up no longer being the Emperor's Wrath, what happens that he no longer becomes the Wrath? And is he still immortal? Does that get taken from him? How does that, do Do we have conclusion to his character later? Because we do with Revan in the MMO. We know what happens to Revan. As, as Poodoo-like as it is, he gets taken down by a bunch of Sith. And by Sith, I mean just a couple low-ranking people. I don't think that they're even that high up. It all depends on how far you played and how high your character level was at that time in that story thing. I mean, to me, that, that I could see that as a, as a backslap of the face to some of the Revan fans of those that worship him like the, the, the false deity that he is. But what about Scourge? What about the rest of the characters? What do we got there, Nate? Well, by the end of the Jedi Knight storyline, the Jedi Knight class storyline, Scourge is still with the Jedi Knight character, the hero of Tython character, is still working with the Jedi. He's not becoming a Jedi, but he's still working with the Jedi in the war effort. So he's essentially a turncoat or a turncloak, as you might say from going back to the Game of Thrones analogy. Um, and we don't really see much else of what happens to him, although your Sith Inquisitor character by the end becomes the new Emperor's Wrath. So at least his title is gone because he has switched sides. You know, to what extent he still retains any of the longevity that comes from that, that I cannot say, at least not definitively at this point. Um, 
Do, is this a good time, perhaps, to go into where the characters in general or where the uh, Revan and Mitra characters go from here? Uh, I would say so. Um, you know, real quick, as we go into that, uh, page 337, as they're wrapping up, I liked how it gave you one last point of view from Mitra as a spirit, how she, you know, loyal to the end, her spirit had remained with Revan, an invisible presence hovering just outside his cell. Uh, she gives him energy. You know, she's giving him the strength to carry on his battle. Then it goes to his point of view, Revan's, uh, how Revan could feel the Emperor feeding on him, but at the same time, Revan's able to... And, and, and this is all stuff Revan actually gives you in the plot point. I will give you the link at the end of this in the show notes. Uh, Revan actually tells him, you know, even as he's feeding off of me, I'm able to feed off of him and, and give him, you know, warning. I'm telling him you don't want to do this. I mean, that's all explained here. Uh, and I liked how they gave you those last points of view before jumping the 50 years into the future and giving you Basil's point of view. Where, you know, we find that she did exactly what Revan and them found lame earlier and named the child just an anagram of Revan. But that's okay. I, mean, I guess we knew that a little bit before uh, before that, but now we see him as a grown-up at this well, point. Well, yeah, it, that was one last thing I wanted to touch on. T3, when uh, they finally rescue Revan, T3 has a hologram of Bastila. So Revan knows he has a son. He knows his son's name is Vanner. I thought that was a, a nice little touch. For Revan, from the father's side of things, you know, I'd want to know what my kid's name was, and I thought that was cool. He didn't, he didn't at least walk off and never know anything else about his family. That was kind of cool. This is true. And of course, the characters go on from here. We wind up in the Old Republic getting a series of so-called flashpoints. Uh, sometimes there are missions that can be carried out by either side. Sometimes it's just for Republic characters or just for Sith characters. And in this case, we wind up with pairs of flashpoints. Two for the Republic characters, two for the Sith Empire characters that give us essentially what amounts to the end of this story, and then another that ties in with uh, HK-47. So, uh, we start out with a flashpoint, Taral 5. Uh, in this flashpoint, and I'm just reading from what will eventually be on the Star Wars Timeline Gold in the next edition, barring any edits, a Republic team is called upon by Jedi Master Oteg. That's the one that's Yoda-like. They meditate together and have a vision of a Jedi spirit. This is Mitra Surik's spirit, though they don't realize it at the time. They don't recognize her, but she speaks of the Emperor destroying the galaxy in darkness when, quote, the prisoner that has been fighting the Emperor for centuries, that is Revan, becomes too weak to hold back the Emperor. The prisoner is imprisoned within the Maelstrom Nebula. To free the prisoner, they need a greedy computer on Taral 5 that can help them make their way through the Nebula. They use a captured Imperial shuttle to get to the surface, then reach the computer and acquire it from Dr. Narum, despite interference from Grand Moff Kilrun, who is working for Darth Malgus. Moments after the heroes leave, Kilrun destroys the base on Taral 5. Then that moves us to the second of the Republic missions, which is the Maelstrom Prison Flashpoint. The Republic heroes that acquired the Greed computer from Taral 5 return to Jedi Master Oteg. Oteg's technicians plug the computer into the hyperdrive of the Telos, that is, uh, the ship, and they chart a course into the Maelstrom Nebula, where the Sith Emperor has kept his prisoner for three centuries. Upon arriving at the prison, the team battles through Imperial forces and are contacted by Grand Moff Kilrim, who is engaging Oteg's forces on behalf of Darth Malgus. He berates them, intending to kill them personally when he's done with Oteg's fleet. After further fighting, the team nears the core, but Kilrim arrives with his troops, just as he promised. He partially ignores Malgus's orders to ignore the team and focus solely on keeping the Emperor's prisoner in custody. In the battle that follows, Kilrun and his men are all killed. Then they use the prison's computer to release the prisoner, who is in fact the long-lost Jedi Revan. Revan has spent the last three centuries restraining the Emperor in a battle of wills. The spirit that spoke to Oteg and the heroes emerges and reveals herself to be Revan's former ally, Mitra Surik, the Exile, who has watched over Revan. Mitra had sensed Revan's strength fading. 
He would have lost to the Emperor soon, so she set the heroes on the path to free him so that he could actively work against the Emperor. With Revan free, though, the Emperor is now freed of his influence, which allows the Emperor to put his massively genocidal plans into motion. Revan leaves for Tython to tell the Jedi Council all that he learned for the Emperor's mind in his centuries as a prisoner. He then intends to head for the Foundry, where he believes he might find the key to stopping the Emperor for good. That then leaps us into the two storylines that are for the Empire at this point. Uh, the first is Boarding Party. A group of Sith Empire agents are sent by Darth Malgus to the White Nova a ship to accept new orders from Moff Fenir. Yes, relating to the pilot character we see much, 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 much later in the continuity. The Emperor's escaped prisoner, Revan, has led them to the Nanthri system, where an alien space station known as the Foundry is located embedded inside an asteroid. The Imperial team is to capture a Republic cruiser that's bringing reinforcements and supplies to Revan's forces at the Foundry so they can use it to infiltrate the Foundry itself. They board the Doran's Sky as planned and wipe out Captain Yelto's Republic defenders. When all appears lost to Captain Yelto, she sabotages the ship so that it will self-destruct, taking the doomed Republic survivors and the Imperial boarding party with it. The Imperials battle their way to the command deck, defeating Storm Squad upon arrival. They shut down the self-destruct and kill the rest of the crew. The path to strike at the Foundry is now open. The threat to the Empire is great. Darth Malgus reveals that he has discovered that the Foundry is a sister station to two others. It is a Star Forge, right, from KOTOR 1. Whereas one focused primarily on transforming planets and a second was used to develop fleets of ships, this one specializes more toward creating droids, which means that Revan can now create an army of droids to send against the Empire if he's not stopped. That then brings us to the final one dealing with Revan himself, called the Foundry. The Imperial team that captured the Doran Sky en route to the Foundry now use the ship in a mission to gain access to the Foundry, seeking to defeat the ancient Jedi Revan and the army of droids he can create with this sister station to the Star Forge that Revan and Malak used during the Jedi Civil War. They pass through the Republic blockade and board the Foundry. They then battle their way through Republic defenders and Foundry-developed Guardian droids. While trying to get through a security door, they are contacted by Revan, who attempts to use his own story to convince them that the Dark Side can be resisted, and that the Sith Emperor and the Sith Empire must be destroyed. He wants them to surrender and send out the rest of the war as prisoners. When they refuse, Revan sends his, quote, infinite army of extermination droids after them. The army is led by HK-47, Revan's droid companion from three centuries earlier, who's apparently found him at this point. Revan has programmed the extermination droids with Sith DNA, so they will hunt down any Sith or Sith descendants, which includes a giant percentage of the Sith Empire's population and ruling class. The team defeats HK-47, who's later recovered by Darth Malgus, and continues fighting their way to the Foundry's inner sanctum, where they face Revan himself. In this final confrontation, Revan dons the mask he wore centuries earlier as Darth Revan and engages the Imperial intruders. In a fierce battle, the Imperial team manages to kill Revan, seizing the Foundry for the Empire. Darth Malgus is pleased. Now at this point, Malgus is slowly building up forces so he can become essentially a new emperor to replace the old emperor, giving himself sort of another faction in the war, which leads us to the last one that has direct influence over any of the characters hanging over from these stories, from KOTOR and from the Revan novel, which is the flashpoint entitled False Emperor. With the Battle of Ilum against Darth Malgus's new empire ending with Malgus's defeat and the capture of his stealth vessel, which of course is in the Battle of Ilum flashpoint, the Republic and Sith Empire recognize that the time to strike against this false emperor is now. With the coordinates for his battle station in hand, both sides send forces against it. 
a team from one of the factions, because you can play as both, so it's either, manages to defeat Malgus's Mandalorian allies, including Jendo Kray. Malgus's allies in the Schism Collective, led by Arcus Wode, however, are blasting away at capital ships with cannons from the base. The Collective designed the battle station into a great technological marvel. The team faces off with HK-47, who has been rebuilt by the Schism Collective under orders from Darth Malgus after being defeated at the Foundry while protecting Revan. Both HK-47 and the Schism Collective team are defeated. The team eventually reaches the throne room where they face Emperor Malgus himself. Malgus sets the station to self-destruct so that it will destroy the fleets attacking it. He then engages the team in combat, which proves to be his downfall. He is killed in the struggle by their combined skills. The new empire is dead before it ever truly lived. Which, of course, leads us into the events of the novel Annihilation. So there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of backstory to the characters as we find them in the Old Republic that must be covered in this book. And there is that bridge between then and now. We don't get anything else with Revan or Mitra Surik between now and then because they are essentially just there fighting off the Emperor's will. But it's nice to see that at least there is some resolution to this. Although, I think many fans will be disheartened to find that the characters that they knew and loved here, uh, particularly dealing with Revan specifically, um, die. You know, Revan's final defeat comes here because... He's not the one who brings down the Empire, it's the heroes of the Tor game, presumably. So at some point, he had to fail, and this was where. Uh, again, another down ending for Revan himself. Yeah, and as I said before, you know, for those that like KOTOR 2, you're getting no resolution, like with, with uh, Badur, uh, Goto, any of the other, uh, Harahan, I, I'm just off the top of my head throwing out the names that I can think of. I'm sure I'm not saying them right. But there were a lot of characters from KOTOR 2 that we have no idea what happened to them. Uh, you know, what what was their fates, where they went, where they went from there. All that was completely left out. Uh, very curious as to what happened there. Very curious as to, you know, what, what happened for Mitra. You know, I mean, well, not Mitra, but uh, for Bastila after that. I mean, they just kind of, like, like you said, you know, we just got that little tidbit of, oh, she just became a mom. I became a grandma and a great-grandma and faded off into the sunset. Um, you know, that's one of those things where it leaves me curious, you know, and one other thing about Bastila too, is the fact that Vanner, he's not force sensitive, uh, you know, and, and I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, and he goes, I guess it skips the generation, Vanner said, and then he goes, uh, you know, she's kind of quiet for a second and he goes, do you ever wish he'd stayed with you instead? And she says, I miss your father every day of my life, but I never once thought that. Why not? Revan knew there was something out there, something that threatened the Republic, maybe something that threatened the entire galaxy. He went to stop it, and I know he succeeded. How can you know that? Because you and I are here talking about this, she said. We haven't been wiped out by war or turned into refugees. The galaxy hasn't come to some kind of horrific end. Whatever Revan did, he made it possible for you and me to live our lives without fear and hardship. And for that, I will always be grateful. And of course, the family line then continues, and we wind up with Satil, Shan, and then Theron, who of course himself is not four senses, so maybe it does skip a generation. I just thought maybe that was the uh, uh, the father coming through in Theron, but perhaps it's just the generational jumping. Someone tell the Solos and the Skywalkers, because they didn't go through that. <laughs> well, you know, and that could be the, the, uh, the 
chosen one DNA at work there, you know, kind of like uh, the the dominant traits in DNA over overruling. Like I got chosen one DNA. We got four sensitive kids up in this. <laughs> Oh, that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you for hanging around with us and sharing in the fandom. Lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report, you can get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. You can explore more than 100,000 titles. You can jump right into a galaxy far, far away, our favorite genres, or explore any other new genre without risk. Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the screen, Audible just might be right for you. And of course, if you're looking for odds and ends stuff, comic books, uh, other sci-fi stuff and whatnot, be sure to check out the Amazon store that my fiancé and I run, mostly her, though some of the stuff is stuff from my own personal collection. Uh, of course, that is Lil Joe Collectibles on Amazon. It is Amazon.com slash shops slash L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all as one word. Uh, hopefully you'll find something of interest there. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes, where we encourage you to leave a review for our show. Uh, you can also find the show right on Facebook, at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. You can post comments to us about the show or ask us direct questions. We love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nate. Saying thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. That anyone will join me playing Defiance on PS3. Or that I converted anybody that did not like this book to loving it. Yeah, I doubt it. Peanut butter jelly time, peanut butter... Oh my god, I can't believe I just said that. Shoot me. <laughs> I, I set you up. I mean, that's all my fault. I, I, and, and I was I was like, should I, I, I should call him with peanut butter. And my wife's like, I, I thought it was funny. That's, you know, just, was, that's just bad. That's what that is. Yeah, it is. my wife's like, that, that's, that's taking puns to a whole new level. I'm like, but I'm a punny guy. Just too much. Just too much. <laughs> Pretty much. I, I'm uh, I'm up to 25, so I'm slowly getting there. I just dog-eared the living crap out of the book, so I'm just gonna uh, check it out. One last thing.
and and I, I I think this is the part of me that loves the Sith books because I really get off on the dark side of things when I play video games. I'm always using my Sith lightning and stuff, but I really enjoyed that moment. I was like, yes, pop that sucker's neck. I, I, I just I totally gave in, man. They need a greed computer from Taral 4. <laughs> yeah, I really like this book. It's hard for me to even, even the second half, like, there's some good stuff there that I just enjoyed. You know, in episode one, 